to Rising. I'm joined remotely today by Brianna. It's nice to see you, Brianna. Where in the world are you? <laughs> I am in Cleveland, Ohio. It is a sunny, beautiful day, although I am missing you in the studio, Robbie. Mm. We're going to pull through and try to give these people the show they deserve. Mm. Well, absence <laughs> only makes the heart grow fonder. All right, what, are, what are we talking about today? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Dr. Fauci gave his final press release, uh, press conference rather, as director of the NIAID and chief medical advisor to the president. We'll get into the fallout from that. Plus, police are set to give an update today on their investigation into the shocking murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. We'll fill you in on what we know so far later on. But first, six people are dead and four are injured after a gunman opened fire in Chesapeake, Chesapeake Virginia, Walmart last night. Police confirm the suspected shooter, who also died, was an employee of the store. Law enforcement sources tell CNN he fired upon co-workers in the break room. Officials have also confirmed the assailant was killed by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Last night's tragedy comes just weeks after a former University of Virginia student shot and killed three members of the UVA football team and just days after a gunman killed five people in a gay club in Colorado Springs. Now, in a court filing yesterday, pay attention to this. Lawyers for the suspected shooter in the Club Q uh, shooting, Anderson Aldrich, say their client is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. The crew over at CNN, however, isn't buying it. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's not anything that we had heard from his background. You know, people have been looking into his background. And uh, I don't know if anybody here, are you guys lawyers? I no. mean, you know, I don't know if, the, I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, th it, that's what he's now saying. It, it sounds like they're trying to prepare a defense against a hate crimes charge. That's the least of his problems, legally speaking. But it looks like they're trying to build some kind of sympathy or at least confusion on the question of whether or not this was purely motivated by hate. So it's not just CNN. Some online sleuths are unconvinced as well. After one of Aldrich's neighbors told the Daily Beast they witnessed Aldrich frequently using anti-gay slurs, Twitter user Alejandra Caraballo wrote, all indications from people who knew the shooter were that he was violent and homophobic. The identification as non-binary is almost certainly a troll. So I looked at that Daily Beast article, and I was actually not totally convinced by that necessarily. Look, it could well be the case that what what people are saying here is is accurate, that he is not non-binary, that he kind of made this up on the spot or his attorneys did as a defense against hate crimes. Sure, could be the case, could be the case that he's extremely homophobic, but it's not, as far as like, in the Daily Beast story, they only had one person saying that, and the person didn't actually even say that he was known for homophobia, just that he had used mm -hmm. the F word slur a lot, which is also something I know, like that a lot of gay people use too. So, in a sort of kind of reclaimy well, way. Surely. So, I, who knows? But the Daily Beast is a very, in my view, a very has become a very sloppy um, kind of journalistic outlet. And uh, so, after I looked at, it, I was like, well, there isn't actually a lot of evidence there of that. Could be the case. Was, Just didn't see a lot of evidence. I, I, I agree with the, 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 was it CNN correspondent there who said that the hate crime charge, any hate crime charge is the least uh, of his concerns. You know, he killed five people. Yeah. He killed five people. And I don't think there's a, a, a lot of leeway for him not doing a significant amount of time in jail, probably the rest of his life in jail. So it, it does seem as though if you weigh the kind of legal value of a, of a statement like this, of, um, uh, of putting out there that he's non-binary versus the kind of cultural impact of it, we saw the cultural impact of it very clearly on Twitter. Immediately people who were frankly not sympathetic to the people who were killed and not sympathetic to LGBTQIA uh, people in general were retweeting it kind of joyously saying, well, this changes the narrative. This is going to um, you know, undermine the cause of liberals. And so I think that people on both sides have to be careful. Uh, we saw what happened with the poll shooting where all of the presumptions about what motivated the shooting ended up not panning out. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of time in the world to wait to see what really was the motive here. There's no need to jump to conclusions. To the extent that, that, that this man went and targeted this location, because he was targeting people of the LGBTQ community, I do think personally on a moral level that makes it worse to hunt down people because of bigotry. But at the end of the day, killing people is horrible. Murder is murder. And I don't want people to overinvest in the notion that it was a hate crime in order to see value in having a conversation about gun control or whatever else can possibly be done, mental health support, whatever needs to be done to prevent tragedies like this happening in the future. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the kind of hate crime designation at all, frankly. Um, violence is violence, murder is murder. Uh, and a lot of hate crime, it, you know, so, so for if something to count as a hate crime in general, so there has to be an underlying criminal conduct. So it's not, it's not just because of the First Amendment, right? It's not just illegal to be hateful or to hold hateful views. Right. It has to be you assaulted someone, you committed some crime, and then it could be if that crime is animated by specific malice against a protected marginalized group, then you could face additional charges. Maybe you'll get a longer sentence, whatever. Um, that's, even that, honestly, makes me uncomfortable from a kind of First Amendment standpoint because then it starts to get into motivation. And you, you end up with a lot, of, uh, a lot of crimes where, okay, the person, because people who commit violent crimes tend to be kooky or weird or, or violent or extreme, might have some extreme views. But then you get into, well, did the extreme view motivate this specific attack, and you start like trying to like, well, what is in their heart, and and, and also we could just ignore it. Like co courts, judges, and, and juries can like like sentence someone more aggressively, even without the hate crime designation. They could say, well, you're more culpable because you're a really awful person, or they could have mitigating circumstances well, or non-mitigating circumstances. Sure. We could do all of that without the actual hate crime designations. It's just my well, Robbie. What do you make of other? Um instances where, for example, you can get uh, amplified charges if you kill a, a judge or a police officer. And the logic is that because those people are uniquely vulnerable, they're in the line of um, you know, direct conflict as a police officer, or they are because they've investigated people, thrown people in jail, sentenced people that they could be targeted um, for retribution by you know other other folks related to the the convicted. That they need the additional mm -hmm. protection against being targeted, and so we have a higher charge. I think the logic is similar, whether or not you agree yeah, with I, it. Yeah, I would be against. I would definitely be against that as well. Um, I, I yeah. think well, I, I don't like laws that kind of dictate sentencing practices like this to to judges mm -hmm. and juries. I, I want to give judges and juries should have have leeway to they know the, the details of every case. It's different. They can look at a specific case and say, well, yeah, maybe in this case, there's some kind of extreme, really horrific element of it that justifies, you know, greater punishment or lesser punishment. We can, like that's how the system is supposed to work. We put those decisions in the jury of your well, peers, Robbie. the judge, et cetera. Unfortunately, the reason that some kind of sentencing guidelines have been promulgated in the past, and I agree they can be abused, right? Mandatory minimums, I think, can take away necessary um, opportunities for leniency from the justice system. But also the reason guidelines were implemented in the first place is that we had outcomes that were wildly biased, where if you kill a white person, you're four times more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill a black person, regardless of your race. And I do think that there needs to be some attention paid to how to minimize sentencing disparities. But I th do think I agree with you that I don't think that the amplifications on sentences are necessarily, um, I don't think they necessarily work. I think if you're going to kill a judge, you're going to kill a judge. Um, if you have bias in your heart and are going to murder someone on the basis of their identity, you're going to do that. Um, but uh, it, it, it is it is frustrating generally speaking, to see people kind of overly invest in the tragedy of this being solely, mm -hmm. solely because of people's identity, even though regardless of what the intent of the shooter is, it certainly has had the effect of terrorizing a community and making them feel very unsafe. Right, right. And the workplace shooting you know, that happened um, last night, right, is, is just as horrifying, even if there's no, it is motivated by, you know, anger in the workplace. Is that really, is that really like different or less bad because it's not specific Animus against a marginalized—it just gets into a very weird and uncomfortable place for me. Like it's—it's—it's it's, it's very bad, and these people need to be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. And it—it it, like I don't—I don't need to know what they, they like, what their views are. Maybe we need to understand them better if we want to combat it, I guess. But from the standpoint of right. holding these individuals accountable, it just doesn't seem to matter that much. Like they should be held mm -hmm. accountable because this is—these are all terrible, terrible things, and we want to discuss strategies for preventing them. It's a little different than you know what the mainstream media fixates on. I think mm -hmm. I like I like that distinction between accountability and understanding. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will have more rising right after this, including Brianna's radar. Can't wait for that. Stay with us. New reporting uh, suggests that FTX founder Sam Bakeman-Fried actually owns stock in Twitter as well, worth about $100 million. Now, according to Semaphore, Elon Musk invited Sam Bakeman-Fried to roll that stock into the now privately Musk-owned Twitter. 
The former head of FTX reportedly started accumulating the stock earlier this year with an eye on potentially acquiring Twitter himself. Now, Business Insider also reported the news. Elon Musk then took to Twitter to deny the reports, tweeting, false. Also, Business Insider is still not a real publication. Just give up. Musk also went after Semaphore, saying SBF is its lead funder, calling their journalistic integrity into question. We want to know that in their reporting, Semaphore states that Bankman-Fried is an investor in their publication. So mm. no hiding the ball here. But, Robbie, what do you think? What This is a he said, she said situation. Which party do you believe? Hard to tell. Now, Elon, it's, I think it's important to note that Elon, so he responded to Business Insider um, and saying that, this is false, uh, and then attacked Business Insider. Business Insider had just, you know, kind of summarized Semaphore's story. This is Semaphore's scoop. So I don't know if perhaps Business Insider um, summarized it in some way that makes it not technically true, and so thus Elon is able to say it's not true. Um, if Elon is, you know, denying what Semaphore's saying, that would almost be something else. When he was responding to Semaphore, he just pointed out that they do, they have um, SBF as a funder, which is true. That, you know, that's something I noted in the two radars I talked about this now, that SBF got involved in a lot of media funding, um, The Intercept, Vox, ProPublica, Semaphore, probably others. Um, he had a lot of money to play with. He was very interested in, um, in, propping up some journalistic outlets, contributing to those, et cetera. I think it would not, it would not at all be surprising if he owned a lot of stock in Twitter. And I think that, and if I'm understanding this correctly, the idea is that he purchased this stock prior to the Elon acquisition and then had some conversations with Elon about maybe them going in together and then decided not to do that, but still has this stake in Twitter. And then I, I'm not totally sure on the details of the, like the rolling over and then be like, he does have the stock. So he is part of the, of, of Twitter, but it's, it's not, it's, it sounds not like that Elon necessarily courted him, but Elon has, you know, claimed that he saw the SBF scam coming a mile away. Maybe this does, uh, maybe this makes that ring a little bit more hollow, but um, I don't know. What do you yeah. make of it? <laughs> It, it, it's curious to me that so much of the liberal criticism of Elon Musk depends on characterizing him as not a good businessman or making sound versus unsound uh, investments. And on the other side, so much of the people who idolize him, not just, you know, like him or like what he's done with Twitter, but who seem to put him on this pedestal, need, are deeply invested in seeing him as a super genius, um, unique intellectual quantity who can do no wrong. I mean, is it possible that he's just a man who has made some good decisions and who has made some bad decisions, is, is capable of making a mistake like misjudging the value of a company like so many other brilliant, accomplished people have done, and also is, you know, good at SpaceX, potentially, although there's some stories out right now about um, people who are speaking out of, from that company about how they had, they had to kind of manage uh, Elon Musk as a, as a manager, as a CEO mm -hmm. there. But regardless of what you think about any of that reporting, like it, it does seem odd that there is this proxy battle happening over Elon Musk's um, kind of intellectual merit instead of being able to just be honest about how, look, he, he seems to not be doing a good job with Twitter. That might change. He seems to be inconsistent about how he's um, addressing the free speech issues on the site, basically letting people on because of his personal experiences with losing a child and things like that, as opposed to having any universal metric. That's a problem. Like, can't we just take these events one by one as they come instead of having these proxy wars over whether or not he really is a genius? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we should also contemplate what it would have been like if Sam Bakeman-Fried had bought Twitter himself. What if he had bought this company a couple months ago, <laughs> then went bankrupt now? Twitter employees think they're having a bad time under the Musk regime? That sounds so much worse. And really speaks to this guy's ambitions, you know, a figure that I had never heard of or had barely heard of, right, until this most mm. recent month. I think I speak for probably many of us saying that. Uh, someone operating... Uh, to to acquire or or have influence or at least as much influence as you get from making large donations to media companies, democratic politicians, um, etc. And I and I have to say, as I pointed out in in the two times I've talked about this on my radars, c coverage that continues to be so softer, I think, than you would than you might have expected, given how the you know mainstream media uh, handles talks about 
tech people, including Elon in general. It's usually very critical, sometimes fairly, sometimes I think a little bit harsh. But um, but it, it's uh, it would have been interesting. <laughs> Sam Bankman Fried in charge of in charge of Twitter. <laughs> well, I wonder. Do you think that the coverage of um uh, the Theranos CEO, who is now uh, going to jail, I believe, for 11 years, uh, who you know, avoided um, sentencing, not sentencing, but you know, actually going for a while because of her first pregnancy, but now is going in pregnant. And there's been a lot of discourse about you know, the, the ethics of that and shining a broader spotlight on all kinds of women who do not, do not have the wealth and privilege that she has having to endure pregnancies in prison. But there is a certain softness to that coverage as well. And I wonder, you know, can you solely attribute this to mm. ideology? Is it about tech? Is it people like being, being you obsessed think, you think it and was, kind of... You, you might be right. My recollection, though, I, I feel like, uh, obviously, the coverage of her was, was glowing and gushing and soft. Um, until the kind of uh, until the critical report came out, right? That none of it works. And then my recollection is that the media turned on her pretty rapidly. But um, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess I could be. My, my recollection is she became like an, an object of scorn and derision and humor very very mm -hmm. quickly. And I should and I should say, yeah, we didn't really talk about her sentencing. Her sentencing seems very harsh to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm I'm a supporter of criminal justice reform. I, I don't really want people to languish in prison, um, uh, especially if they're not like a threat to public safety, which I don't think anyone thinks that she really is. Obviously, she did something very horrible and needs to kind of you know, pay for it or make recompense in some way. I mean, uh, 11 or however many years she got well, is a yeah. very harsh I, and very lengthy sentence. I'm never going to argue in favor of longer sentences, but I will point out that it's commensurate with sentences for people who've stolen many, many, much, much, much smaller volumes of money. And people like the environmental protesters who also didn't hurt anybody, didn't cause any loss of life or not a phys physical threat, um, but who have been going to jail for commensurate lengths um, for protesting, uh, strapping themselves to, to oil pipelines and the, and the like because of the threat they pose to capital. Yeah, I wouldn't put those people in prison for 10 years either, even if they threw some macaroni at a painting. How about that, Brianna? <laughs> it was soup. Whatever it was. I'm just getting hungry. You talked about uh, your, your uh, mother's macaroni or your macaroni that you make at your Thanksgiving. <laughs> that was, uh, That's what I'm going to do as soon as I get off this camera. <laughs> clearly, rubbing. I have not gotten that out of my head. <laughs> All right, I'll, we'll save, have... I'll save you some, Robbie. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, more rising right after this. Stay with us. Well, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, last week, former Daily Show host Jon Stewart interviewed a bipartisan panel of former State Department heads, which proved that when it comes to foreign policy, there is no red, no blue, just American empire. Now, it's a 44-minute interview with plenty to provoke if you're looking for fodder for these tense Thanksgiving dinner conversations. But one excerpted clip in particular has been making the rounds, and I think it's because it's such a perfect exemplification of what's wrong with our foreign policy apparatus. In it, Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice are, are completely take for granted the U.S.'s role as, quote, the world's policeman. When questioned about the wisdom of intervention in Libya, which even Obama describes as his worst mistake, Hillary declined to consider even for a moment whether intervention was the best course of action. Instead, she justified the NATO intervention, which involved over 7,000 bombing missions and which has led to the rise of literal slave markets in Libya on the basis that then-leader Muammar Gaddafi threatened to kill his own people like cockroaches. Here's the first part of the clip. You know, just very briefly on Libya, because that was on my watch. Um, but this is not, again, no, no, this but is my not point, I want, yeah. But I want to make a larger point because, yeah. you know, Gaddafi was a bad actor. Everybody knew he was a bad sure. actor. And he threatened to kill his people by cockroaches. The United States was actually the supporter of European countries through NATO and the Arab League, which for the very first time came and said, we want to be part of trying to protect the people of Libya now. So I feel that that particular intervention, we had certain capabilities militarily that nobody else had, which we used to assist them. But, you know, the Emiratis were flying and the Jordanians were flying, et cetera. The problem, and this is where I think you, you make a really good point. The problem is, okay, Gaddafi's gone. Mm -hmm. um, his horrible prisons are emptied. What comes next? Right. 
That's what the comes next? And that's, that, the that's always a problem because that's, there's yeah. always a vacuum. Uh, because look, dictators don't allow institutions to uh, to flourish. So when you take the dictator out, there are no institutions. That's right. So that's but, but the question becomes: Do you then say let Gaddafi go ahead and kill his people because it's going to be hard afterwards? Or in our case, uh, we thought Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. You're going to let that continue, or are you going to take him out and then do the best that you can in helping people to recover? You have to recognize that it's going to be hard once you take the dictator out. Holy smokes, who would have thought you need to define the goals of your intervention and consider what happens in the void once you topple a regime? Apparently not to former secretaries of state. And looking at the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, I'm afraid this is a lesson that America still hasn't learned. Now, for context, at the beginning of this clip, Clinton is referring to a speech Gaddafi made to supporters about protests calling, uh, sorry, sorry, about uh, supporters um, about protesters calling for his resignation, in which he told his supporters to attack the, quote, cockroaches, greasy rats, and cats protesting against him. Now, one doesn't need to approve of that language or the incitement to violence to admit that the standard for dropping bombs on a sovereign nation is certainly higher than mere despotic language. After all, the U.S. loves to back dis- dictators when those dictators back the global capital order. It's why Biden has kowtowed to Saudi Arabia's MBS, despite saying he'd make him a pariah, and why Trump joked, who's my favorite dictator, during a 2019 summit attended by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Johns Hopkins professor Robert Gutman hits the nail on the head when he attributes America's inconsistency on the matter of dictators to cynical self-interest. Moreover, if dehumanizing language that incited militias to violence were a cause for humanitarian intervention— The U.S. could be ripe for invasion. I'm old enough to remember during the 2016 Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton was dogged by statements she had made in the past about black and brown children, describing them as super predators that had to be, quote, brought to heel. Language that is deeply dehumanizing and which came in tandem with tough on crime policies that incarcerated and killed a generation of Americans. What her remarks didn't do, well, invite an international humanitarian intervention on behalf of the U.S. prison population, the largest prison population in the world, according to data from 2015. Of course, one of the biggest criticisms of NATO's Libyan intervention was that it selectively took elements of Gaddafi's rhetoric at face value. That's a quote from the United Kingdom's parliamentary investigation into the aftermath of the war, which concluded that the government failed to identify that the threat to civilians was overstated and that the rebels NATO was backing included a significant Islamist extremist element. The report concluded that Gaddafi was not, in fact, planning to massacre civilians and that reports of his plans to do so were propaganda spread by Western governments and the rebels themselves. But America did what Gaddafi did not. The New York Times investigation found credible accounts of dozens of civilians killed by NATO, We saw the same type of propaganda used to justify the first Gulf War as tales of incubator babies uh, being killed filled uh, headlines. And lo and behold, the specter of weapons of mass destruction is still being leveraged to avoid accountability for U.S. interventionism. Just take a listen. Should the United States be selective in the use of its military power? Right. Yes. Right. After Afghanistan and Iraq, which we did for security reasons, not because we wanted to spread democracy at gunpoint, but for security reasons. Although ultimately we were told that spreading democracy would make the world safer because freer countries would be more peaceful. Well, I think if you you actually look at the record, uh, uh, democratic countries actually don't invade their neighbors. Democratic countries don't harbor terrorists. Uh, Democratic countries don't use weapons of mass destruction. So I think they I don't harbor them, but they have them. Well, you can't. It, it'd be hard to. But, I mean, but, that but John, was planned but, in but Germany. But they're not aided. They're not aided. I, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And the always that is a distinction. <laughs> that clip now reads a little bit like a like a Thanksgiving dinner conversation. Look, I, at first I had to take on the idea that Iraq and Afghanistan were motivated by security interests rather than spreading democracy. Stewart did well to push back here, but I'd argue not quite strongly enough. Spreading democracy, of course, was an explicit justification for these wars. In a 2005 news conference, for instance, Bush alluded to a broader strategic objective, which is the establishment of democracy. In a 2003 speech, Bush explained that America's, quote, commitment to democracy is tested in the Middle East, 
He went on to say, quote, securing democracy in Iraq is the work of many hands. American and coalition for forces are sacrificing for the peace of Iraq and for the security of free nations. Spreading democracy was a feature, not a bug of those invasions, and pretending otherwise is some of the boldest revisionist history I've ever seen. But Rice's next claim, that democratic countries don't invade their neighbors, harbor terrorists, or use weapons of mass destruction, really takes the cake. America provides military assistance to 73% of the world's dictatorships, including Saudi Arabia, whose intervention in Yemen has caused civilian deaths, illegal killings, torture, gender-based violence, and famine. Only one country has ever dropped an atomic bomb, of course. That's us. Moreover, even in relative peacetime, the U.S. drops an average of 46 bombs a day. Laos has the distinction of being the most heavily bombed nation in the world because of the 260 million bobs America dropped on it in the name of spreading democracy. Yet Condoleezza Rice has the audacity to claim that America's military power is a global force of, of justice and good. How much longer are Americans going to let the bipartisan blob weaponize legitimate humanitarian crises to create more humanitarian crises? How much longer will they lie about war crimes to justify war? How long will journalists, pro-peace politicians, and the voting public let them? So, Robbie, this was a pretty galling interview. It did the yeah. rounds. You know, a lot of leftists have been talking about it. I mean, what do you make of it? Yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, I, well, I agree with you uh, very substantially in what, in what you were saying. And Jon Stewart was a pretty um, well-informed and, and pretty on-point critic of the Iraq war throughout the aughts in, you know, in his, in The Daily Show, which was, you know, mu that was must-watch viewing for, um, for everyone who had grown to be very, uh, very <laughs> not on board with what was going on. So it was interesting to see him, I just threw my, threw my pencil, you, you're gonna miss it, you're not in the studio, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't you're, you're not gonna get friendly fire here. Um, I was surprised that he didn't push back more given that was his history, especially with regard to that conflict. It was absolutely justified on grounds of spreading democracy. That's just, she's just not telling the truth there, Condoleezza Rice, or she's rewritten it in her own head. Absolutely, there's no question it was justified spreading democracy. George Bush justified it that way. I'm sure Hillary Clinton did as well. So the idea that, I mean, neither of these justifications end up working because it was a very foolish effort in, in either case, but um, they want to say it was just about our own security or something. That's not at all, that's not at all what they said. Well, what in fact, polls about like the, the excuse of spreading democracy, it used to be useful. It used to work and it used to be popular, but in fact, it is the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that taught Americans not to buy into that justification anymore. And now, you know, spreading democracy polls very poorly as a consequence of what Americans learned about those conflicts. So yeah, that that was pretty egregious. Um, and this, you know, we had a little bit of this conversation yesterday about to what extent is it what about is and to talk about America's own um, misdoings versus not. And I think a conversation like this is why I think it's useful always to put these things in context. And I don't think it's necessarily whataboutism because you you have people not just saying there's a tragedy over there, we have to intervene. They're saying bold, broad statements like democracies don't do anything wrong. Democracies don't have weapons of mass destruction. Democracies don't, don't inflict these kinds of harms on the world as though we, we don't mm -hmm. support the overwhelming majority of dictatorships that are also characterized conveniently as democracies if, if we want. And like this all is in some semantic game that's justifying American, um, you know, the, 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 the global economic interests of our country. And at least if they just said it plainly, we're going to invade because we want oil. We're going to invade because we're threatened by a different economic system that would, would threaten the, the dollar's hegemony. You know, I wouldn't agree with it, but there's something particularly perverse about trying to use people who are really struggling around the world to justify these imperial aims. Right. And Libya is such a good example as well. I, I think often a forgotten example, maybe perhaps the clearest example of just utterly no justice, makes no sense. We wanted to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. We caused a humanitarian catastrophe. Right. We made that that country vulnerable to ISIS's rise, it, which did not contribute to our own safety. You know, people were being, you know, 
executed by extremists in the streets after after that government was toppled due to our intervention. Hillary Clinton masterminded it. It was the worst mistake of Barack Obama's entire presidency. I think he feels that way about it, too. And then we almost mm -hmm. elected the woman who was almost solely responsible for that. It's uh, just just incredible. And then she gets to, you know, have an interview and lecture us all about what, you know, what a smart foreign policy would look like. It just makes absolutely no sense at all. Yep. We'll have yep. more rising after this. Thank you for that, Brianna. Stay with us. A suspect has yet to be identified after four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death in an off-campus group home this month in a shocking quadruple murder that has devastated and terrified the small community of Moscow, Idaho. So here's what we know so far. On November 13th, Moscow police responded to a 911 call around noon reporting an unconscious person. And then they found Madison Mogan, 21, Kaylee Goncalves, 21, Zaina Kernodal, 20, and Ethan Chapin, 20, all stabbed to death in this group home. So the three women were roommates and they lived there. Ethan Chapin was the boyfriend of one of the, one of the women, Zaina Kernodal. Police say the 911 call came from one of two surviving roommates who apparently slept through the murders, which took place on the second and third floors. Police have ruled out all occupants of the home as suspects. The coroner's report states the four victims were likely stabbed as they slept. No signs of sexual assault were detected, and some victims did have defensive wounds. Rumors that one of the female victims had a stalker have circulated among online true crime communities in the days since the murders. However, police say they have been unable to verify this. Also, the source of speculation online are the over 10 phone calls made by two of the victims within an hour of their murders. Those calls, none of which were answered, are confirmed to have been made to the ex-boyfriend of Kaylee Goncalves. Uh, however, people say they have cleared him of involvement in the killings. So this is Ugh. a, yeah, this is a really uh, obviously shocking and, and terrifying and uh, bizarre mystery here because this happened, you know, two, almost two weeks ago now, and, and the police seem pretty stumped, which is unusual for a crime, you know, this, um, this many bodies in a, in a, uh, university, you'd think surveillance camera footage or, you know, people would know like, oh, it's that maybe it's that, you know, weird guy who's been harassing them or something to, for, for police to have no idea who it was for this long after such a kind of appalling group murder in a situation like that. This is is extremely rare in like in the modern era where there are cameras everywhere and where, you know, forensic um, uh, sort of abilities are very very advanced so it's a, it's a weird one they, they've so they've apparently ruled out this boyfriend care apparently the the phone calls made are not actually all that suspicious because this individual she was known for making like a lot of calls like even very late at night if she didn't get you she'd call you a bunch of times so they were saying that's like characteristic mm -hmm. behavior for her not like a red flag or anything um, mm. and uh, apparently that, that guy has an alibi. They've ruled out, um, I think the Uber driver who brought the other two home that night. Um, they think, so, so the, the two, the surviving roommates who lived on the first floor, they, they essentially just, you know, they had it at a late night. All of them had had late night at various social gatherings. So they just kind of, they woke up like, you know, late in the morning, like noon and found an unconscious body and called the police. And then there was just there was like blood everywhere. So it's it's, uh, oh, it's really so disturbing. horrible. Yeah, it's so horrible. And it, it does seem especially senseless, given that the ground floor and basement roommates were completely bypassed, which is not necessarily what you might expect. If, mm. if it's a random killing, you come in, you just take what you can get. You, you kill as catch can, as it were. Um, but there, even though there does seem to be something, I mean, like, what, how, do, how do you make sense of that? Going upstairs, yeah. killing people, not even just targeting women exclusively, killing the woman who was in bed with her boyfriend. Um, it, it, it's in a horrible tragedy, the fact that it's on a college campus where you feel so relatively safe and like there are eyes and, to your point, surveillance everywhere. What a, what a gruesome and horrible story. Yeah, they uh, and there was no signs of force entry. Um, I, they have not found uh, the murder weapon yet. They they can tell from the stab wounds exact. I think pretty exactly what kind of knife um, it was. And li like we said, well, do you we know, know? Is it more like a kitchen knife or like a tactical knife? Do we have a sense that this is someone who hunts and maybe planned this and yeah, bought a, a knife for killing? I. I don't think it's like a kitchen knife type deal. Um, that's a good question. I don't have that 
the answer to mm. that um, handy. But uh, but yeah, but the police said like put out a statement saying they didn't think the campus was in you know, as horrible as this is. They don't think students or the campus is in general danger. And then they basically retracted that statement. They were like, "Well, we, we don't we, we don't know why we said that because yeah, how can you tell? Right? Maybe they have a that? killer on the loose. Um, so it's very uh, I, 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 the story is getting a lot of coverage. I think deservedly because it is so it is so out of out of the ordinary. I mean, it, you know, it raises a kind of you know, serial killer Ted Bundy type character. Obviously, these were all known to each other. These aren't you know, it's not a long string of targeted. Killings or something, but uh, but it is it's just it's increasingly very rare in our day and age for police to be kind of this you know stumped in in a case where they're trying to so obviously they police don't clear murders you know inner city crime etc you know the, the kind of indifference etc I'm not trying to like over glamorize police's uh, you know ability to solve crime. but in cases like this where they're where they're trying and it's a, it's a, it's out of the ordinary and there's cameras you know well lit. Home. It's 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 weird to not have more of an idea what's going on. So, uh, I think we'll be continuing to follow updates in this, and we'll see if you know the kind of the kind of sleuth um, attitude. You know, everybody on social media now trying to solve these crimes. Like the um, I, I can't remember the, the name of the, the the woman, the Instagram woman who who went missing, who was killed by um, her uh, her boyfriend. The, 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 the Pito? Uh, yeah. Right. Right. So maybe uh, people can help. The police shed some light on this uh, really crime, uh, really horrible crime. Catch this person and make this campus feel like a safe place once again. Truly terrible. Mm. Mm. Well, more rising right after this. Stay with us. When Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, he dominated mainstream media, earning more than two billion dollars worth of free publicity in March of 2016 alone. Now, a week after announcing his third run for president, he remains banned on Facebook and Instagram and silent on Twitter, where his account was recently brought back by new owner Elon Musk. Trump hasn't done an interview with a major broadcast network since the 2020 election and hasn't been on CNN or MSNBC since 2016. Any interview he has sat down for since his stint in office has turned to the topic of 2020 election fraud instead of current issues facing the country. So will Trump be able to pivot and dominate the media once again? Joining us now to discuss is editor of Fourth Watch Media and author of Uncovered, Steve Krakauer. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Great to be on. So, Steve, it seems like the media has learned its lesson from 2016, where common the common belief was that because the media paid so much attention to Trump, they basically made Trump into a reality. So the question now is, if they withhold all of that attention, if they withhold the oxygen from Donald Trump, will he, in fact, flame out? It's a good question. I, I think there's two elements to it, because I, I think you're right. I mean, they certainly gave him a ton of attention, particularly those places like CNN and MSNBC, which would turn on him entirely starting in the end of 2016 and into 2017 and the rest of his presidency. But I do think there's there's two sides to this. You know, the first is they gave him the oxygen of the, you know, the empty podium, just waiting for him to go and speak and then covering his rallies and just airing them in full hours and hours and hours of rallies of, of just basically free messaging for Donald Trump. That will definitely not happen again. And I do think that that is an element that will potentially hurt him because I think that's a way of getting your message out there. But the second one is the coverage of you know, Morning Joe and the, the interviews and then Don Lemon did some bit. But I actually don't know if that's going to make a difference. Sure, he will not be doing interviews with Joe Scarborough or Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper like he did in the primary last time. But I don't know if that's going to affect him with GOP primary voters. I, I don't know if that really moved the needle as much as it did in the first place. And in particularly if it's another crowded field in 20, uh, 2024, like it was in 2016, I think it just, he, he just needs to get to that threshold of GOP primary voters, his core base. And then the media, the mainstream corporate media is not really going to affect him one way or the other, I don't think, in terms of winning that primary. How do you think conservative media is going to navigate him? Because obviously he's he's good he's well liked by a lot of their uh, their readers, viewers, etc. Um, others might prefer a different candidate by now, and I, I get the sense that a lot of the talent would prefer a different candidate, but they're not going to turn on Trump if they're, in my perception at least, is they won't turn on him if they get negative feedback from viewers, readers, et cetera. So what, what do you think conservative media is going to do vis-a-vis -vis Trump? 
it's it's going to be fascinating to watch. I think we're already starting to see it a little bit with the Rupert Murdoch empire of News Corp, because you've got the New York Post going hard against Trump and going hard for Ron DeSantis in the early days, his announcement, and even in the post midterm coverage, they're really just anti-Trump, essentially. I mean, the New York Post was looking like it was uh, Slate or Salon at that mm-hmm. point. Fox News has kind of been a little bit in the middle, but I do think that that's where you might see this interesting split. Sean Hannity, is not going to go and and turn on Donald Trump. But is the day-to-day news coverage of it going to be a little bit more negative, a little bit more critical? Is there going to be less of it? You know, is there going to just the oxygen going to be taken out by places like Fox News? And I would also put it out there as like, what does Tucker Carlson do? Because I, I could see Tucker Carlson moving towards the Ron DeSantis field than the Donald Trump field. And he has a lot of sway, not just with Fox voters, mm-hmm. but with GOP primary voters. And so I'm gonna, I think that's going to be a fascinating one to watch. And I do think that that has the ability to potentially help or hurt Trump, depending on what those forces do. Yeah, the New York Times profile of Tucker Carlson from over the summer made the point that Tucker has been kind of slowly but perhaps you know, very sagely distancing himself from Trump the man and instead um, focusing on Trumpism as a phenomenon in a way that might give him some more wiggle room than some of the other uh, hosts to still hold on to that audience uh, while still creating some necessary distance, potentially necessary distance from the man himself. I wonder what you make of uh, Trump's being allowed back on Twitter, but exercising some restraint with respect uh, to to tweeting. Is this just a troll of Elon Musk, or do you think this is part of a a longer strategy to to treat the media a little differently than he did the last time around? I have to say, I mean, it it is remarkable restraint to see Donald Trump not just going and and opening his account and starting to go tweet again. We know how much he loved the platform. I get the sense that this is more of a business decision right now for Donald Trump. He wants to make Truth Social a thing. I'm not sure that's going to be a nice long-term plan for him. And, you know, as of right now, it's we're very early in the in the primary race in the in the 2024 cycle. I mean, it's 2022. I, I think that as this gets going in 2023, as other candidates get in the field, he will need to get his message to as many people as as he as he possibly can. And Truth Social, as much as the media loves to just, you know, share every truth that truth that Donald Trump puts mm-hmm. out on Truth Social. I, I, I see him going back on Twitter as soon as he knows it's no longer tenable for him to just continue to try to make Truth Social a thing. Well, former Attorney General William Barr is calling for a new leader of the Republican Party. Monday in a New York Times op-ed, Barr said Trump will, quote, burn the whole house down. He went on to say his egoism makes him unable to think of a political party as anything but an extension of himself, a cult of personality. Um, I think the question is, will there be a lot of challengers, a lot of um, uh, fighting for that mantle of successor to Donald Trump, you know, in a two-man contest between Trump and, say, Ron DeSantis, um, I I think there's a I think there's at least a, a good chance, uh, maybe a maybe a more likely than not chance even, that DeSantis could really um, steal Trump's thunder. If we get into the position we had in 2016, where there are 16 candidates up there, each drawing like a fraction of, of the Republican Party's, of the base's support, and Trump has the plurality, you could absolutely see an exact repeat. So will people like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and Tom Cotton and although maybe he, I think he just said he didn't want to be a candidate or Mike Pompeo, you know, the names we keep hearing, uh, Chris Christie, are they going to, you know, can uh, we talk about Trump's ego, but, can, you know, can their ego stop them uh, from, from or prevent, you know, hold them back from just kind of sticking, being in, sticking it out and drawing enough of support to chip away at the anti-Trump vote? Yeah, I think that's probably the key question that's going to, that we're going to see in the next nine months, because I do think that 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 plays such a role, not just in the political situation, but also in the media. Because look, Liz Cheney throws her hat in the ring. It won't make a a difference of whether Trump wins or not. Obviously, she's, you know, essentially irrelevant to the Trump base. But yeah, I I think does, is it a couple people, but is it people like, uh, you know, Ralph Northam and and a lot of that list that you just, you just said, and I, I, you know, I, I also produced the Megyn Kelly show, Larry Elder, uh, the the guy who ran for for governor uh, in California said that he is likely to run for president. Now, you know, he's not going to win. But are we going to get people like that get their message out there, start splitting things? Because that is a is it's splitting the oxygen with the media and it's splitting the GOP vote in the primary. And I look at this 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 is a bipartisan thing because I really do think that this was one of the the 
the really undercovered stories of what happened with Bernie Sanders in 2020 as well, because you know, without the galvanization by places like MSNBC and other corporate left media, and also with the candidates that were not named Joe Biden all going behind Joe Biden in that last pre-Super Tuesday push, would that have gotten Joe Biden over the line? I don't know. And I, I think that that's going to be core for what the GOP does. And they are not able to rally behind a person. They can't, they're not going to rally behind Ron DeSantis. The GOP does not work that way. There will be a lot of people that throw their hat in the ring, ring or they will decide it's not my turn. But that is going to be the core of whether Donald Trump is going to easily coast in 2024 or whether it could be messy again. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was that was exactly what was on my mind. You know, Democrats in 2020 seem to have learned some kind of lesson from Republicans in 2016, uh, you know, having everybody drop out after Super Tuesday and rally behind the establishment candidate to take out Bernie. You're saying that you don't think the Republican uh, Party operates that way. I look forward to tracking what actually happens. And thanks, of course, for joining us today, Steve. Hey, guys, anytime. Appreciate it. We'll have more rising for you right after this. The GOP Oversight Committee says they have discovered 50 countries where the Biden family sought business. They tweeted out this map yesterday saying, quote, the Biden family sold access to enrich themselves often to the detriment of U.S. interests. Is POTUS compromised? Americans need transparency and accountability. Last week in a press conference, House Republicans announced an investigation into the Biden family. Here's how the administration responded earlier this week. Can you address whether the president was involved in any of his son, uh, Hunter, or his brother's uh, foreign business deals? So, look, I, you know, um, there's there's some a little bit of uh, 41 interesting, uh, you know, kind of on-brand uh, thinking here because, um, you know, congressional Republicans uh, ran uh, saying that they were going to fight inflation. Uh, they said they were going to make that a priority. They were very clear about that these past uh, several months. and. Instead, what they're doing is they're focusing, uh, you know, they're focusing, they're making their type priority. They get the majority, and their type priority is actually not focusing on the American families, but focusing on the president's family. Hmm. That was a pretty lame attempt at some spin there. I mean, look, they can do multiple things. I, you know, fair point that maybe Republicans were not focused enough on providing answers to what they're going to do about inflation. And that's why I think we've, you know, we've discussed this. I think we both feel that way, that they didn't perform as well as expected in the election. But like, you know, they, they, are, the government, the, the party can do multiple things. They can investigate this. And that was a total non-answer to her question. And right. in fact, they ran, they did run on ha having these investigations. They promised Republican voters that they would look into this. So it was just a totally non-responsive answer to that question. Yeah. Kareem, it is perfectly possible to say no. There's no evidence that Joe that Joe Biden had any involvement with his son's dealings. Moreover, it does a disservice to the American people that Republicans aren't actually addressing some of these pressing economic needs they said they cared about. Like that's you're able to say that. But the the weird evasion before actually declaratively answering the question, you know, if if Republicans pursue these investigations of the Biden family, you know, the onus is on them to find evidence mm -hmm. of the thing. And you can, incur, you know, it's their right to do so, just like it was the right of Democrats to investigate Donald Trump. But I, I, I do agree with Karine Jean-Pierre to the extent that it is not especially helpful to the American people who are getting way more attention uh, paid uh, to these kind of kangaroo court investigations of individual bad actors, potentially, um, but not any affirmative plan set up by Republicans and very little from Democrats with respect to actually how to deal with the cost of living increases and economic plight that so many Americans are dealing with. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think that's true. But I think they are going to look into this. They said they would. The fact that uh, you know, the, how the FBI has handled this issue, you know, that's something I really want um, answers to, you know, more looking at why uh, why why the investigation was you know delayed toward af after the election does that hold up was that proper why national security officials seemed so uh, convinced that the laptop was disinformation all of that stuff I, I think there are legitimate procedural questions even apart from the the important the very important question about you know whether 
Biden uh, was was leveraged by by his son's connections. Again, there has not been any evidence of that yet. Maybe there won't be. It would have been totally expected for Karine Jean-Pierre to say exactly what you just recommended. There is, as of yet, no, there is no evidence. I mean, she should say there's never going to be any evidence, right? She's the spokesperson for the administration. Uh, it's not like, you know, she's going to be get a misinformation label if or like that will be the least right. of her problems. If They're later on it her. turns out, oh, actually, there is evidence he was uh, he was compromised <laughs> in some way. Nobody's going to there will be bigger problems than oops. Kareen said something that was not totally accurate. Right. So right. the press, idea that she has to be very careful lies. there is odd. Press Secretary lies. News at 10 is not exactly a headline anybody <laughs> expects to see. But look, let, me, let me ask you this. I mean, as you alluded to, we have been talking about whether or not Republicans made a misstep in focusing on some of these culture wars. I mean, you can describe uh, some aspects of the Hunter Biden investigation as substantive and some other as kind of capitalizing on a cultural distaste for Democrats, et cetera. You know, the emphasis on, you know, the trans kids and, and these kinds of things didn't seem to have paid off. Do you expect there to be a doubling down on, on these kinds of issues to the detriment, to the exclusion of talking about all of the economic priorities that Americans are so clear uh, they want addressed? Yeah, look, I mean, the issue here is that a, a lot of very conservative, very Trump-supporting, very right-wing people um, do want answers to these questions, do you know feel strongly that uh, the Hunter Biden issue is is improper and it's important to investigate it, feel strongly about trans issues, the cultural issues, you know, whatever you want to describe them. And there are a lot of those people and, and they they want and, and uh, Republican kind of politicians or media organizations or pundits, et cetera, um, you know, keep talking about those things because they, if there's no audience for it, yeah, they would stop. But there is a big audience for it. The issue is it's not it's not enough. It, these are not important issues for the for the group of people that need to be persuaded to support Republicans who are more in the middle, who might be down for Republicans if they're not talking about those things constantly, if they're concentrated on the economy, if they seem more normal. You know, I would note once again that the Republicans that I would describe as normal-ish or not, you know, so obsessed with these issues or, or not offering the most kind of right-wing versions of these issues did actually do very well and had the best night of all in the elections. Your Brian Kemp's, your, um, your, your people of that nature. So Republicans, it, like, it, I think the path is clear, but there will, it's, there will be incentive to talk about culture issues. And look, and I think talking about culture issues is important. And I, I think even even moderates, even even centrists and some Democrats are, are, I think, concerned or have questions about how much input, for instance, parents get in what's taught in schools or you know, what the schools are doing in general. I don't think all of these cultural issues are necessarily just right wing issues. And it's always a mistake but, but to Robbie, talk about them. I, I characterize them as right-wing issues. I characterize them as issues that didn't get people to the polls, especially when something yeah. that's as substantive as abortion rights is hanging over them. So we use the word audience. You know, what, what, you know, there's an audience for this. I, I don't think that you meant it this way, but I think that that word suggests a kind of cable news audience and yeah. it suggests the kind of media focus that I think the Republicans got caught up in and they forgot that real people aren't an audience. They're constituency is a constituency of voters who have real needs. And we'll see, you know, we'll see how this this kind of focus, if they maintain this particular uh, focus instead of pivoting to some more economic issues and offering real solutions for those economic issues instead of just blaming Democrats. Um, we'll see how that pans out. In I mean, it would, it would not be right. It would not be strange if that happens to uh, right wing media is to, you know, pandering to a shrinking audience of people who are obsessed with a certain kind of issue. I mean, that's something that uh, we argue has happened to the mainstream media all the time. <laughs> just, you know, media institutions can become captured in that way and can kind of kind of miss the broader picture. So if something mm -hmm. like that is what happened and why this election didn't turn out the way they expected, that would not actually be all that surprising. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Well, we will have more rising for you right after this. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre shut down a reporter's question to Dr. Anthony Fauci on the origin of COVID-19 yesterday. Let's watch. I will not call on you if you yell. And also, you're taking time off the clock because Dr. Fauci has to leave in a couple of minutes. I, I'm seconds. done. I'm not going. I'm not getting into a back and forth with you. Go ahead, Jeremy. Dr. Fauci, um, but, but she's only, only, only thirty. Good question. You're not being answered. Jeremy, 
You ask your question, you should allow her to ask some questions. It is not your turn. It is not your turn. You can read the press briefing. You need to call from people across the room. She has a valid question. She's asking about the origin of COVID. I hear the question. Dr. Fauci is the best person I, to I hear your question, but we're not doing this the way you want it. This is the disrespect of... It is. That exchange took place when Dr. Fauci addressed the White House press corps, giving his final message after 50 years of public service. My message and my final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible to protect yourself, your family, and your community. I urge you to visit vaccines.gov to find a location where you can easily get an updated vaccine. And please do it as soon as possible. Thank you. During that same appearance, Fauci promised to cooperate with any possible House Republican investigations into the origins of COVID-19. Aggressive oversight from House Republicans, the new majority next year that they've been promising. So, on hold on one second. Uh, Dr. Jha is going to stay to take a couple more questions, but Dr. Fauci actually has to go. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Fauci. Thank you. I can answer his question. Yeah. 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 He, he says I'll See, answer it. I'm, okay. I'm a good, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying so, to keep him on right. time. The answer is, if there are oversight hearings, I absolutely will cooperate fully and testify before the Congress have asked. You may not know, but I've testified before the Congress a few hundred times, uh, okay, <laughs> over the last 40 years or so. So I have no trouble testifying. We can defend and explain and stand by everything that we've said. So I have nothing to hide. So that's the last It's kind of incredible. Go ahead. Yeah. How how much more credible he seems just answering the questions as opposed to the deflections that Karine Jean-Pierre tends to deflect to, t t tends to jump to immediately. Um, just saying, hey, of course, of course, I'm willing to talk. Of course, I'm willing to engage. I'm willing to stand here and answer my question. I'm not going to be rushed off the stage. You can, you can see whatever you think about Dr. Fauci, his years of experience really uh, coming into play there, making him seem like a lot more credible interlocutor than Karine Jean-Pierre. Yeah, and he doesn't shy away from the spotlight. I, I, he, he likes answering questions. I, I think he actually enjoys the fray a little bit. You know, he, he's gotten into mm -hmm. it with Rand Paul and some other people. So I'm, I'm sure he will answer questions if asked. Um, and those questions should be asked because we have a lot of them, um, uh, you know, a, a, with respect to the origins of the pandemic, you know, some of the mitigation efforts, some of the guidance he gave, but, you know, particularly the origins uh, as we're going on as as House Republicans have you know new powers to launch investigations to look at these matters, um, I really do think much more than Hunter Biden or anything going on with that. I, I hope they really do seriously probe you know what we know about how COVID arose and what our funding of this kind of research that Dr. Fauci has been the foremost public advocate of funding. You know what that has gotten us. What are the benefits of that, and what are the potential drawbacks? And does it have anything to do with COVID, or could it, in the future, have something to do with the emergence of a new disease? Those are very important questions. That they're not partisan questions at all. Republicans want to hold Fauci accountable, so they're interested in asking them. But plenty of people of all sorts, all areas, all corners of the political spectrum have uh, an interest and concern about that. So let's hopefully get those those questions answered now yeah, according to an, good point an, yeah go ahead i was just gonna say it's a good point about it being bipartisan i've been thinking about how jeffrey sachs who you know is on the left was a, a surrogate for the bernie sanders campaign and who is one of the most kind of senior people who are in a position to be investigating um the the origins of COVID 19 he's on uh medical journal science journal lancet's uh investigation team heads that team and he has been rocking boats all over the place with his uh, willingness to really press on these more difficult questions from uh, a position of being very much in, an, an insider historically in this field. So, yeah. Mm. Well, according to a new report from the Department of Health and Human Services, masking and social distancing should be encouraged or even mandated to protect people from COVID-19 and from the possibility of suffering from long covid the White House is also launching a six-week booster push aimed to encourage Americans to get their COVID boosters as we head into the holiday season. 
According to a fact sheet shared first with CNN, the six-week campaign will focus on researching seniors, sorry, reach, reaching seniors in the communities that were hit hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic by making it more convenient to get vaccinated mm. and increasing awareness through paid media. Look, mm. I don't have a problem with this, Robbie, and I wonder, you know, I, my position has always been that making vaccines available, making it easier for people to make that choice, if that's a choice that they want to make, is preferable to jumping immediately to a mandate paradigm where people are going to feel distrustful and feel coerced. And I always wondered why, if you want students to get vaccinated, you don't just set up uh, stations in front of schools at the start of the school year. Um, you know, why you're, they're not doing more things like that, why they stopped sending tests out to families. What do you make of this? Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. Schools are some of the only places I think now where there really are still uh, mandates. Uh, I've talked to college students at uh, places like Harvard and Yale that have, they had a requirement to get the bivalent booster, um, which I think makes just like absolutely no sense. You know, you're talking about a, a population that is not particularly at risk as a population for, for COVID, you know, who, who were required to get vaccinated already. Now you're requiring th this shot, which does, you know, I have to say, I, I, I got it. It does knock you out if you get it at the same time, not everyone, but some people, if you get it at the same time as a flu shot, it does really knock you out. You know, other health authorities are questioning whether it should even be recognized for or required or recommended for this group of people. So I, I, yeah, I think that approach makes no sense. But sure, fine, we, we can do lots of outreach to people who would likely be much better served by getting it, uh, older Americans, immunocompromised Americans. It's hard for me to imagine people at this stage of, of where things are not you know, not being aware of what their options are, but maybe it is the case. Uh, maybe you know, people, there are people out there who would like to get it, but don't know specifically how they would do that. So some kind of awareness campaign is useful. If that's the case, absolutely fine. Yeah. You know, if you want to encourage, well, and if you want to encourage people to, mm -hmm. you know, take precautions, you know, when they travel or, you know, wash their hands, et cetera, you want to ask people to wear a mask, fine. No more. I don't want any more you know, requirements on this front. But, you know, people we've the benefit of one way masking has now been recognized by health authorities. So if people want extra caution, they can wear their own, you know, very high quality mask and 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 proceed with the knowledge that that gives you a very good, according to the science, a very, very strong level of additional protection. If that's something you're interested in, it's not something you have to force on anyone else. And as long as we have an agreement that that's how we're going to proceed, then let's just proceed. Yeah, it's not awareness, though. I think the, the idea of making it more convenient for people to get mm -hmm. boosted. I was talking to a friend of mine who has uh, a two-year-old and who just gave birth, and she was talking about how frustrating it was, how difficult it, it, the idea of even getting her toddler vaccinated is because you have to not only take the kid out of daycare, you have to take a day off of work, make a doctor's appointment, and basically lose, lose a day to those kinds of things. And, you know, she's a more you know, privileged person who has the ability to take that kind of time off work. Other people having to take their kid out of school to make a doctor's appointment and take time off work. Look, that's a barrier enough for folks uh, to not go ahead and do something. And it takes it out of the realm of choice, like a real, do I want this or do I not want this choice into a, uh, is it worth the lift kind of a choice. And so if the government wants people to have a lower threshold to go ahead and get some of these interventions that exist, I think that they, it absolutely, I think they absolutely would see higher vaccination rates and higher booster rates if they simply had at schools, at workplaces, you know, at places that, that people regularly convene as part of their daily schedule, opportunities to get boosted, ch churches, et cetera. I mean, they have them at, I, I got it through at CVS. They have one of those at like, you know, on every corner <laughs> virtually. You make an appointment, you get it. I understand it's, you know, it's difficult. It can be more challenging for people who work or people who have kids, but I don't know, it doesn't seem that hard to me. I'm sure they can make it a little bit easier, um, et cetera, but I don't know. Well, it does appear the, area, the era of vaccines at warp speed is over. According to reporting by The New York Times, President Biden has asked the lame duck session for $5 billion for next generation vaccines and therapeutics as part of a broader $9.25 billion pandemic spending request. 
But Republicans have continued to block requests citing complaints about how the White House previously spent pandemic aid. We're also learning about a major roadblock to the, de- to the development of a COVID nasal vaccine booster. Scientists have been barred from using leftover Pfizer or, or Moderna doses in their studies, even though millions of unused doses have been thrown away. According to the Times, purchase agreements prevent doses of vaccines from being used for research, forcing scientists to pay outside manufacturers to make imitations. I read this New York Times story. It was pretty infuriating. It sounded like um, uh, both some corporate failures and some regulatory bureaucratic failures, like on, on both sides, to make to make both of us, Brianna, to make both of us angry. Um, a, a what lot are the about, regulatory failures? Because it uh, sounds the, like uh, corporate pharmaceutical companies protecting their their own profit bottom line, not wanting their their you know no, I don't, I don't not wanting to was... get anything out for free. But they're they're already. I mean, they already have extra doses of this, and it, there was a. They can't be like they, since they were not designated for research purposes. They can't be used for that in the agreement that the government and the corporation made. And it's very. It, it has a. It, it it's on, on both ends looks very foolish. But like there are. They're they're developing some of these um, uh, therapeutics potentially here, and then they're not going to be able to use them here because of because they were, they were. Um, the research was done using vaccines that were not designated for this purpose, so you can't approve it based on that. It seems very short-sighted and very bad to not to, yeah, to not this, have this all that way. Very much like typical behavior from a pharmaceutical company, typical behavior from a corporation that would put limitations on the use of its product into an, an agreement in order to protect its IP and its own um, potential profitability down the line. That seems like an open and shut case. This is what this is what lawyers do. And this is why it's such a shame that so many parts of, I won't say the left, but liberals have really abandoned any critique of how the pharmaceutical companies have made this crisis worse than it needed to be unwilling to share its IP with the global south. Uh, people in other parts of the world not anticipated to be able to have access to vaccines until next year or the year after. It's really egregious stuff, and there's really no defense for it. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, Teslin Figaro joins us to discuss 2024 and how old is too old to serve as president. We're likely to find out soon. Plus, executive editor at The American Prospect, David Dane, will join us to weigh in on the student debt relief legal questions. Now, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Thanks for watching, and we will see you soon. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye.